What's up, Evan? Welcome to Desolation Radio with Dan and Nath. How are you? Um, good. <laughs> How I forgot, are you? I've got to say episode 32. Episode 32 nearly, already. Nearly a year old. Oh, we are a year old, actually, as of last week. I think we started on the, what's the day-to-day f- 13th we first put our first episode in. We're big on anniversaries, aren't we? Yeah, we both forgot. Um, okay, so episode 32, come a long way, and you know we've got a very special guest with us today. We're joined by Martin Shipton, who's the... Chief Reporter of the Western Mail on Wales Online. Welcome, Martin. Good to see you, Dan. Um, and me. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Fellow non-driver. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Unbelievable. Two non-drivers. So it's just... Uh, okay. All right. So, yeah, we're delighted to be joined by Martin. Um, and today we're going to be, you know, I guess it's the second part of our... We're so cultured, aren't we? Second part of our uh, book review series. Today, I mean, before we spoke about uh, Simon Brooks's uh, Why Wales Never Was, and now we're going to be reviewing... Um, Martin's new book, Political Chameleon uh, in Search of George Thomas, which is, I guess, what, how, how do you describe it, Martin? Like an unofficial biography? It's a hostile biography. <laughs> a new genre of... Uh, Absolutely. new genre. Yes. Um, I'm the founder of that genre. <laughs> All right, so... Um, Kicking a man while he's dead yeah, in, in 270 pages. Fantastic. Uh, fantastic. <laughs> it's a brilliant thing to do. It really is. Um, all right, so... We're going to talk about the book. Um, first, we're going to go through uh, our very, well, it, as I said, it, it, it's normally, we wanted to be official and call out this section Wales this week because our podcasts are becoming frequently, you know, a bit, bit, bit more intermittent. It's like Wales, Wales this month, I guess. Um, so we're going to do a brief, this is Wales. A brief roundup of the news. Um, and again, normally Nath and I just do this on our own, but given the political acumen of our special guest, we thought we'd invite Martin to make some comment on some of these stories. Um, I guess the first story that's happened since um, our last pod was um, the dumping of 300,000 uh, tonnes of nuclear waste off, Car- <laughs> off Cardiff by uh, the French energy firm EDF that run Hinkley Point uh, Power Station over the Bristol Channel. Um, and it's kind of like beyond, it's kind of beyond parody <laughs> because we've sort of said in the past that, you know, what's, you know, we're going to have all these horrific things coming to Wales, like Guantanamo Bay, nuclear submarines, um, and they're all going to be sort of welcomed and critically. Um, I mean, I had a bit of a rant on it on Twitter. I mean, Neil McAvoy's um, been sort of whipping this up, and there's a petition going around uh, to get the Welsh Assembly government to sort of re-examine this. Um, and one of the interesting things about it was I was looking through the, I mean, Friends of the Earth, uh, Cymru, I think back in 2013 or 2015, had raised concerns about this, and the Welsh government were very, very clear in saying, "No, we're not actually." That's the exact we're, opposite we're, thing. We'll we definitely do. never dump nuclear waste uh, in Wales. If there's one thing we're committed <laughs> to do, yeah. If there's one thing we'll never do is commit is dump nuclear waste in Wales. Um, and now, obviously, you know, they have done. I mean, the, I mean, I guess the semantics of it, Martin, are about whether or not the, the sludge is is nuclear. That's what it seems to be about. Is that? Yes, and I think uh, some of the concerns that have been raised are quite legitimate because people are saying, well, they may be able to take samples from the top of the sludge, but the more serious radioactive material may be further down in the sludge. So, best bits um, are down in the bottom. Well, that's very often the case, isn't it? It's so like cereal. I think the, uh, the, 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 you know, the precautionary principle should be followed. You know, we don't want this stuff. And why is it that they happen to be. Uh, dumping material from an English nuclear power station off the coast of Wales. I mean, that is 
something which I think we all need to think about. And, uh, you know, the worry is that it is actually going to um, pose a long-term health risk. It could be a good uh, boost to the Welsh Tourist Board, could not it? I don't think many people are going to be coming here to uh, encounter the sludge uh, nuclear sludge. Yeah, they could just check their own out, can they? Well, I mean, the, but that is an interesting thing, like, you know, almost like, you know, why? Because with previous, like, white elephants and, you know, inexplicable... Uh, economic decisions made by the Welsh government, you can sort of see, all right, well, that's short-termism, and but it's bringing like jobs, and so they can say, well, hey, we've brought fifty jobs, so shut up. But what I'm interested in is, like, like as as the as the sledge, is there an economic incentive, or is it? I can't imagine there is. I, I don't, don't think there's anything of any economic value in it whatsoever. It's a really weird. Um, Do you think someone's pockets get in line? To me, like pers- personally. Well, I mean, uh, but 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 it, it is. I mean, with it, pretty much every other. You know, when Carmen Jones said he wanted to bring uh, Trident, you know, to Pembroke. He's I mean, just obsessed with nuclear things, isn't but, he? But you, could, but you could see then, okay, well, okay, there are jobs in, there are jobs in that. I don't agree with it, but there are jobs in, in nuclear and things like that. And, and as with, like, the Circuit of Wales, the narrative is jobs. But with nuclear, with, like, dumping nuclear waste, you really, you know, you're struggling really to think of what possible reason there could be to accept that. Um, but there's... The whole thing is brought to like some really weird. I mean, I know that in the last assembly manifestos, you know, Friends of the Earth Cymru uh, ranked um, the sort of the, the how how green or environmentally friendly the different parties' manifestos were, and Labour was second last. I think they had like one point five out of ten. Um, UKIP were dead last, which is you know, beating UKIP isn't exactly something. One of their to, policies was just throw all the rubbish into the sea, wasn't it? <laughs> UKIP, yeah, and Labour is like just a, just a little yeah. bit better than that. They're like, maybe we shouldn't chuck all of it in there unless but, it's nuclear. But when it, I, well, it's also difficult to see how it ties in with the legislation which they passed quite recently, which is the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act. They've got a, um, exactly. a Future Generations Commissioner... <laughs> Uh, who is there to act as a safeguard? And I can't imagine that she's going to be very happy with this. Well, exa- exactly. That's the thing. They, they kind of, on the one hand, they're building in this legis- progressive legislation. You know, the Future Generations Com- Commissioner, which, as you said, is ostensibly should stop all this. It should clearly stop things like this happening, but it, it isn't. And one of the maddest things that I read about when I was just doing like a little search for sort of, I guess, the background to like how how this sort of came about, the nuclear sludge, was I think it was in two thousand eight. 2011, there was kind of a UK-wide proposal that nuclear waste has to be buried, like somewhere in the UK, mm. and one of the proposed sites was Wales. And the Welsh government's resp- response was, "We are neither." Their official response is, "We are neither opposed or you know pro nuclear waste being sort of dumped under <laughs> Snowdonia or whatever." And it's just it just reveals a really, I don't know. I mean, I just I can't possibly understand having that that yeah, mindset. Have it just really no opinion on it. Yeah, I, I'm okay. Either way, yeah, I mean, don't care. Yeah, just shove it into. I don't care if it's in like our schools or it's not. It, it makes no difference. Okay, so that's the other. So that's the first, you know, quite frankly, insane thing that's happened. Um, but kind of the way things are going, I mean, the news is getting so bizarre that stuff like this is just almost becoming par for course. And um, the other thing is that uh, I get. Well, this is less interesting, but you know, Plaid and Labour have ended this budget compact that they started in. Two thousand sixteen, I believe, mm-hmm. uh, After to, the election. to ensure basically that Carwin Jones stayed on as first minister, essentially, wasn't it? And so they it was they just agreed a budget, didn't they? Um, but now they've ended the compact. Um, so what is that? Just like almost withdrawing a a gentleman's agreement? Or well, yeah. What they said was that they would, um, in return for 
being allowed to have input into the budget and input into policy agendas, they would not vote against the budget. Uh, and they've done what amounts to a three-year deal because they're now to, they've now given the go-ahead to two further years. Um, but they've said that uh, that's the end of it so far as they're concerned and they're not going to do it in the future. But I suppose the problem from Plaid's point of view is that they remember that the last time they were in government with Labour from 2007 to 2011, they actually did pretty badly at, in the election at the end of it. So while they would say that they had some achievements during that period of the so-called One Wales government, the, the most um, successful perhaps being the fact that they had this referendum so that there could be primary lawmaking powers at the Assembly. Um, they weren't thanked for that by the electorate and they lost seats. So I think they're now worried that if they're just seen as Labour's little helpers and that's the charge that they get thrown at them by the Tories at the, at the next election, uh, then uh, they're going to lose out again at the, at, the, at the next election. But the trouble is it won't stop the Tories because they will say, well, they've helped them with uh, three uh, annual budgets. So if they didn't want that charge to be levelled at them, they shouldn't have got involved with them in the first place. It's, I mean, you're absolutely right. And they did get hammered after the One Wales Coalition because people essentially couldn't, I mean, two soft nationalist social democratic parties, what's the point in voting for Plaid anymore? But what I've noticed, I mean, again, I'm not, you know, don't, it would be good almost to have an in on these parties, but it almost seems as if Plaid have the exact opposite, like, view of uh, politics of Labour. And I, I don't want to paint Labour as, you know, a Machiavellian villain, but villain even, but it, you know, Plaid sort of say, well, we would, we'll do this in order to get our progressive policies implemented for the good of Wales. But, I mean, if you're a cynic or, dare I say, a political realist, you would say, as you just alluded to, that there's a good chance you're going to get absolutely hammered for this in the polls and in the press because people are going to just accuse you of, of propping up Labour. But Plaid sort of say, well, it's a chance for us to get our policies implemented, basically. Um, and I, I mean, I think that's, on the one hand, a really admirable thing to do that you think well this policy mm. is progressive is, is so important that we want it to be implemented and they and they clearly i mean you I speak to you know play people on twitter and things like mm. that and they say well this is a sign of like a mature opposition and things like that but it really leaves them open to the charge of well you know are you really in opposition if you just you know, whatever you say people can accuse you of propping up a Labour government. And that's, as you said, that's what Andrew R.T. Davis just says all the time. But then um, on the other hand, if you've made the principal decision that you want to have a stay in the government and you come up with policy proposals and uh, you agree to back the budget on that basis, then what's the point of jettisoning the, the deal? Because you've already made that policy principal decision. So why why change horses, um, you know, just... just 18 months into the uh, the new term. I think what it is sense. is because they basically listened to the desolation episode with Simon Brooks <laughs> where he argued for a far more confrontational sort of style, you know, from Plaid and basically said, didn't he, you know, they have to stop this... Bring consen- back MAC. <laughs> this consensual <laughs> form of politics and just adopt a more, you know, I guess, you know, Labour the main enemy, as, mm. I guess. But they, I mean, they, you really think they're so damned if they do, damned if they don't know Plaid, don't they? I mean, they're in such an unenviable position. They can't ever go into coalition with the Tories because they'll get slaughtered for it and if they go into coalition with Labour then 
And also the problem is that the, the narrative that gets across to most people is that between Labour and the Tories at a UK-wide level. Absolutely. Uh, and Corbyn is the man of the moment. He's the insurgent. And uh, that rather leaves Plaid uh, out on a limb. And it's difficult for them to get a new narrative. Yeah, it absolutely is. Um, okay, on that, quite de- another quite depressing. No, There's never going to be an uplifting uh, roundup of what's happening in Wales, is there anything? Um, okay, we're going to go on now to Martin's book. Um, so the book is about, I mean, I'm going to read the blurb, if that's okay, Martin, mm-hmm. not verbatim, but um, it's a study of George Thomas, the former Labour cabinet minister and speaker of the House of Commons. Um, and I guess... I mean, I spoke to my my grandmother about this and my, my parents. And for people of a certain generation in Wales, I guess George Thomas was a is a really was a really central figure in Welsh political life. Um, and so this, you know, when did the book come out last week? About a month ago. About a month ago. Um, it's had pretty uh, amazing reviews. Um, just going to read some ex- excerpts from uh, Darren Hill's uh, review of it on Click on Wales. Um, he basically says, it is by far the most brutal political biography I've ever read, um, but that is perhaps fitting since Thomas's own chocolate box volume, uh, you know, his own autobiography, is amongst the most sugar-coated and self-serving you can buy. So, it was, uh, And then he also says that Martin Shipton absolutely despises his subject is clear on pretty much every page, which I think is, <laughs> which is a brilliant, um, uh, well, it's, it's, it's a, if, if you're like us and you, you know, you love slating people, and there's no higher praise, really. So why didn't you tell us, Martin, you know, about George Thomas? Mm. Well, this came about, this book came about, the, the gestation, if you like, for the book um, began when uh, three years ago it came to light that he was under investigation, posthumously, obviously, uh, for raping a nine-year-old boy in Cardiff back at the time when he was the Secretary of State for Wales. And uh, I had a uh, conversation over a couple of pints with Ashley Drake, who's the publisher in Chapter. And uh, Ashley was saying that it was important that this whole career of this man should be thoroughly investigated. And of course, the point is really that um, you've alluded to the autobiography which he wrote, which is a very self-serving volume. What, what was that called? Just so interesting. Uh, Mr. Speaker. <laughs> Mr. Speaker. So oh. he's the hero of his own autobiography and uh, everything he does, he seeks to justify. And there are obviously huge gaps in this book. Now, um, uh, there were also a couple of other books that were written by uh, Methodist preachers, uh, which were very... Um, uh, laudatory of um, George Thomas. And yet, during the time that I have been working as a journalist in Wales, um, I've had many conversations with people who um, absolutely detest him and thought that he was a pernicious politician uh, who was absolutely horrible. And I think the thing is that um, until the book that I've written, there was not a full look at his career by people who were sceptical about the claims that he made about it. So I accepted the challenge, really, if you like, from uh, Ashley Drake, the publisher, to investigate. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> it's gone dark in the studio. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know whether this is uh, some sort of... Uh, There's been a murder. By, uh, George Thomas. But anyway, 
Uh, I accepted the challenge from Ashley Drake to look into George, into George Thomas. And uh, the first point really was to read his autobiography to see what he was saying about himself. And then I discovered that there was an absolutely huge archive that exists um, uh, on him uh, at the National Library in Aberystwyth. So I went up there on a few few occasions, spent a total of about 10 days trawling through this huge amount of material and found that there were some very interesting pieces of information that hadn't previously come to light, which were actually quite seriously to his discredit. And I think the point is that it's important for people to understand the significance of this man in Welsh history and the fact that while he's been dead for 20 years, his legacy lives on. Uh, one of the early chapters in the book is titled Servile Welshman. And uh, what I'm alluding to there is the fact that from uh, the early days of Welsh history, uh, going back to medieval times, uh, the last prince, uh, Llewellyn, was actually betrayed by uh, Welsh people. Uh, Owain Glyndwr had a lot of Welsh people who were fighting against him. There were an enormous number of Welsh people who joined the British army uh, to engage in the uh, colonial uh, expansionism and oppression that the British Empire took part in. Uh, so there have been, uh, over the centuries, uh, a lot of uh, Welsh people who have actually sucked up to the British establishment and in his way, George Thomas was the epitome of that because he was not only a sycophant to the British establishment, he was a sycophant to the royal family. Uh, he also demonstrated a hatred of the Welsh language and a hatred of any attempt to set up uh, a democratic entity on a national basis for Wales. And his legacy, we know, uh, exists today. There are still lots of people who will snipe at the Welsh language. There are lots of people who are opposed to um, the institution of a Welsh assembly on principle. Uh, and it is uh, an, an unendearing trait of uh, Welsh personality, if you like, that, that this exists. Didn't uh, during the first um, Welsh referendum for dev um, Welsh referendum for devolution, he? Uh, bragged that uh, to the pro-labor uh, sorry the pro-labor pro-devolution labor that, that it hadn't gone through and then a few years later it went through on almost the day he died well it, it actually went, went uh, through the the referendum was held on the 18th of uh, September 1997 and he died on the 22nd uh, four days later and I have spoken to one of his friends by that time he was associating largely with Tory MPs and a, a, a Tory MP who now sits in the House of Lords told me that effectively it killed him uh, because he just couldn't bear the idea of there being a Welsh Assembly. But he was also very much uh, an early Brexiteer. And um, in the 1997 general election, which took place a few months before he died, he was backing uh, the referendum party, which was a sort of precursor to UKIP, which was led by uh, a billionaire called Jimmy Goldsmith. Uh, do you remember him? Uh, he was uh, Sir James Goldsmith. He, he owned um, some food conglomerate and uh, was somebody who decided that he hated um, the European Union, although he actually had a French mistress and was half French himself. 
for his own perverse reasons, he decided that he wanted to um, uh, he wanted Britain out of the EU. So George Thomas was a supporter of this, and he actually did uh, a few months before he died a uh, rather nauseating video in which he was um, backing this party. So in his uh, political career. The reason why I call the book uh, Political Chameleon is because he really went on a huge political journey, the trajectory from what uh, in its day was quite far left. And I show in the book how in the 1940s, uh, late 1940s, after he'd been elected as an MP in 1945, he was associating with some far left Labour MPs who were actually controlled by the Soviet embassy. And, um, Good old days, isn't it? Yeah, yeah and he was involved in all of Back that. Back when Labour was proper, like. <laughs> but um, he literally, literally yeah. said as well that he went over uh, to Russia with him to meet Stalin. He did. He went to Russia. He went to other satellite um, uh, communist states. But he went with this group of Labour MPs uh, to Moscow, and he was actually flown down to Sochi on the Black Sea to meet Stalin. Um, just while they're passing, like, you know. Well, you know, the idea that that, that would happen so uh, just randomly is ridiculous. And in fact, what he was doing is he was trying to organize some pro-Soviet meetings in uh, Cardiff and brought down the Soviet ambassador. And then he tried to claim subsequently that he'd, he'd just been a bit naive. Well, that's ridiculous because there was actually a, a whole cache of oh, communist that's propaganda. Stalin. Oh, yeah. I, I feel silly now. Yeah, there was loads of propaganda material found in his papers, which are lodged in the uh, National Library. Okay, so... I, just I do admire a, a man with absolutely no backbone, though. What's that? Just do admire a man with absolutely no backbone. <laughs> For starting off being like, you know... Uh, big Stalinist to end in his life, best mates with Thatcher and the. Well, we we did say that. I mean, obviously, it's great to see someone get, get a, a posthumous kicking. Yeah, uh, and you know, she was just a, a, book, a, a spineless sort of toad. This guy sort of really was. But I mean, we've said since day one that our main goal is to sell out and hopefully one day be bought out by a huge media conglomerate. Yeah. It is. So, um, okay, I'm just going to rewind a bit, Martin. I'm just going to give just for our young hip listeners who mm. might not be uh, aware of uh, George Thomas. I'm just going to quickly read the Wikipedia entry just to give mm. an overview of like his, you know, who he was and who is, you know, so Thomas George Thomas. I know, I didn't know he was a uh, so Tom twice, um, <laughs> AKA, twice, AKA the first Viscount on a pandy. Um, so he was born on you know, 29th January, 1909 to 26th mm. September, 1997. He's a British Labour Party politician, uh, speaker of the House of Commons. He's born in Batalbot. Uh, he initially was a teacher in London and Cardiff, and he was an MP from 1945 to 1983. Uh, he was in office in Harold, Harold Wilson's 1964-1970 to Labour administration, administration, notably as Secretary of State for Wales from 1968 to 1970. And as you said, mine, in that sense, he's obviously probably highly influential on in the trajectory of, I guess, devolution and, you know, and Welsh Labour's attitude towards devolution and mm-hmm. things like that. Um, Part of the main thing, I mean, in, in sort of the Welsh national imaginary, he was junior minister of the Wales office um, at the time of the Aberfan disaster in 1966. Um, and he was later involved in the controversial government decision to use money from the Aberfan charity fund to clear the remaining national coal board waste tips from around the village. So, again, we'll go through that in a minute. Um, and in 1976, he became, as he called himself, Mr. Speaker, the elected Speaker of the House of Commons, in which role the first broadcastings of parliamentary proceedings brought him unprecedented public attention. So he was... At the time, clearly, he was a, a media big, was just a really famous politician from Wales, isn't he? It went across the world because it was the first time that Parliament had been broadcast. It was just radio, mm. uh, but um, 
the BBC would use this and that the, there were people across the world who were tuning in listening to these um, debates from Parliament. And he said, order, order. And that became in itself a catchphrase which became known throughout the world. So he retired from Parliament in 1983 and was elevant, elevated to the peerage as Viscount Tonopandi of Rhonda in the county of Glamorgan. Okay, so that's a very brief overview. Like I've said, I mean, I mean, you speak to people of a certain generation and George Thomas is is extremely famous. Um, he has faded from public life, and as you said, because... And faded from life. <laughs> and faded from actual life as yeah. well. Um, because, I mean, as you said, the allegations of paedophilia and things like that... Um, have made his name mud, essentially, in Wales. Um, Though not radioactive mud. No, not radioactive mud. No, yeah, what, anyway. What, what, what I'm interested in before we go through, we'll go through the book, I guess, um, chapter by chapter and theme by theme. But I was just wondering, I mean, when you were growing up, was he, how prominent was he and how, I mean, did, as it, I mean, did you ever have a positive view of him when you were, when you were younger? Or as it, as it, as like a wall, as it, did it come as a shock to you or did, how did your hatred develop, basically? <laughs> well, um, <laughs> Intrigued I, by it. I think I always regarded him as a creep. Okay. Whenever I saw him on television, uh, he, he was he was a creep. He just came across as a very smarmy individual, and there was something which, to me, was pretty false. Um, but people of an older generation uh, found him to be a, a charming, wonderful man. And in the same way that he was sycophantic to the royal family, he had a lot of people who were sycophantic to him. Mm. And you could tell that by, uh, I found this out by the huge uh, number of cards that would be sent to him at Christmas on his birthday on occasions when he was ill. And in the latter years of his life, he was suffering from throat cancer. And whenever there was an item in the news about how he'd had a relapse or something, there would be literally hundreds and hundreds of cards that would be sent to him from all over the place. You did mention within your book that uh, a lot of his illnesses weren't as they seemed. And uh, there was... Well, there was one occasion where, in panic, he rang... Leo Absey, who was another Labour MP at the time, uh, who was also anti-devolution, but on the other hand, uh, he was a great social reformer who was responsible for legislation that um, uh, made divorce easier and that um, partially decriminalised homosexuality. Um, but he, in a sense, became George Thomas's protector and rescuer because he was engaged in um, covert gay activity at a time when it was illegal um, but he also was blackmailed by rent boys and um, uh, Leo MC would come and help him but there was one occasion where uh, Leo MC got an early morning call from George saying come and help me please please and on this occasion rather than having to um, pay off a rent boy he had to go and see him in hospital because George was convicted was con- uh, was uh, convinced that he'd got a sexually transmitted disease and he wanted Leo to somehow help him out with that. Um, so, argument. and the, the thing is, this is a guy who was extremely <laughs> right sanctimonious. I mean, this is a man who uh, was one of the leading campaigners against pubs in Wales opening on Sundays. So at the same time as he's doing that and being very pompous about it, he's consorting with rent boys and um, quite likely uh, abusing children. It's do, do you unbelievable. Think, sorry, do you think that um, it is, because obviously uh, nothing was really kind of proven uh, with it, do you think it, it is a likelihood that he was? Well, the thing is, um, there is an allegation that was made by a man who 
now lives in Australia, that he was raped when he was a nine-year-old in Cardiff uh, on a series of occasions. And uh, he eventually came forward many years later to make this um, allegation. Uh, the police uh, looked into it. First of all, they didn't actually pursue it, so the guy had to make a formal complaint before it was taken seriously by the police. And earlier this year... Uh, it's sort of run into the sand a bit. And obviously the difficulty is that George Thomas has been dead for 20 years, so he's not available to be interviewed. What we can say is that um, there were other people who came forward to say that they'd been indecently assaulted by him, particularly on trains and at railway stations. I don't know if he had some sort of weird fetish for trains and rail railway stations, but there seemed to have been um, there seems to have been a pattern where this would happen on trains or in railway stations. And uh, um, uh, Lindsay Whittle, for example, the Plaid Cymru AM, uh, told me that he knew someone uh, who is now dead, who uh, was touched up by George Thomas on Pontypridd uh, train station, and then he flattened him. And he fell over and uh, whacked his head. This is George Thomas whacked his head and was knocked unconscious. And the guy who had punched him thought that he had killed him and he, he just ran away. Um, and Lindsay Whittle was told about this by the guy uh, subsequently and he was completely convinced that this was right. And the thing is, there does, does appear to have been a modus operandi here, which uh, was a, a common... Um, a common theme. Uh, now, one of the problems, of course, is that because he's not a current celebrity in the way that people like Jimmy Savile and Rolf Harris were, um, there hasn't been the massive amount of publicity. Sure. So because of that, uh, I think, you know, there could well be other victims out there who haven't come forward. Uh, but I think... You know, the most we can say, we can certainly go so far as to saying that he was indecently assaulting young men. Uh, and there has to be a likelihood that he was also involved in um, paedophilia because um, some of the people that he used to hang out with at the House of Commons were people about whom there have been more substantial allegations of paedophilia, like Greville Janner, for example. Cyril Smith as well. Cyril he? Smith was a fellow of his. He was quite quick to write. Uh, letter of um, you know support when Cyril Smith was openly accused of you know he was he did he did that yeah normally as a politician you probably want to stay a bit clear wouldn't you you'd have thought so he also he used to choose the causes that he took up um very strangely I mean he was he was actually um supporting Jonathan Aitken and he was supporting Jeffrey Archer mm. and he thought that Jeffrey Archer should get some prize um and oh, for writing wasn't it for writing yeah prison notebooks <laughs> well, it could be that. <laughs> um, but, I mean, he, the, the people that he backed were the sort of people that you wouldn't want to be associated with Neil at Hamilton. all. <laughs> well, um, <laughs> uh, the, the thing is that he was, uh, he was ready to back these rogues, but he was not prepared to back people who had legitimate causes yeah. for concern and legitimate campaigns. So I think that tells you a lot about uh, Although he, um, cause you mentioned that he was pro-nuclear disarmament, but never bothered with the CND. That was very strange because he was actually on a march in London, uh, which was seen by many as the start of CND, but he never actually signed up for it. 
And I think this is all a sort of self-seeking thing because he came to the conclusion that if he became seen as a supporter of CND, he wasn't actually going to get anywhere in terms of getting government jobs. So um, he was he was the sort of guy who uh, has been described by Gwynoro Jones, the former Labour MP who's quoted in the book, as a man of no principles whatsoever. And I think that the evidence of his life, the way he behaved and the contradictory positions which he adopted from time to time uh, would indicate that that is an accurate description. One of my um, favourite bits of it was when, uh, was it Oswald Mosley was marching through? Uh, it was in Wales, wasn't it? And instead of joining the counter-protest, he went to the cinema. That's right, yeah. exactly. And yeah. uh, he was he was quite young, and he was helping. Um, he was going around like some. It was a mentally disabled hospital, and he said he'd never seen anyone before like like in that condition. So his first reaction was to run outside and throw up. Oh my god! Yeah. All right, yeah. so um, Prop- like you know, despite being like from a very poor background, he certainly had like you know maybe an air about himself or to the extent that I'm better than, you know. I think that was certainly the case, yeah. We're going to go through, we'll, we'll try to go through it now chronologically because I think one of the, well, not chronologically, but the, the important thing, well, it's all important. I mean, I'm, I am not trying to get away from the paedophilia stuff because it's just <laughs> so, it's grim, it's so it? dark and depressing. Um, but you conclude, Martin, and you say, you know, why understanding George Thomas is important. And you, you just said there in the introduction about you know George Thomas being a, like a servile Welshman and him being almost like the archetype of this type of Welsh person who is essentially a social climber and and the more they ingratiate themselves with the British establishment the more they seek to sort of jettison Welshness certainly get rid of political Welshness um, and as you said he was a monarchist um, he ended up you know really ensconced with like the Tory Party and these as you said these rogues gallery of you know some of the horrors people, you know, the most horrible people in British political history, really. Um, so I guess, I mean, it's you're trying to tease out how someone becomes like that. So if it's all right with you, we'll just do you mind talking about his? I mean, the first chapter is, uh, you know, you, well, the second chapter, rather, after the Servile Welshman, you, you know, you say he's a man's boy and he was a left wing activist. So, I mean, you know, it's interesting to see how does someone like George Thomas develop because. Obviously, George, as you've alluded to, George Thomas did have a reputation as a left, and he was a left winger in his early days. So, talk us about his early life. Talk us through his early life and his early political career. You know, and how he, I guess, before he was, he got into politics. Well, he was uh, born in Port Talbot, but uh, at a very young age, in a matter of months, he moved to Tonopandi. Um, now, the thing is that his uh, family background is quite interesting because his father was a guy who uh, had moved to the valleys from Carmarthenshire. He was a Welsh speaker. Like so many other people. That's, like so many the other com- people. The most common it's flow of common immigration. thing to do, yeah. Um, but his mother came from a family where the father had moved from uh, Gloucestershire. Uh, he was a sort of small-time building contractor. And so there was a very heavy English influence as well as this Welsh uh, influence from his father. Now, uh, the thing is that um, uh, the older siblings uh, that he had would speak Welsh, but he was uh, very young. When he was very young, he uh, was born in 1909 and uh, First World War began in 1914. His father was quite a brutal character who used to beat up the mother. 
uh, and uh, was a, a, a drunk. Uh, when he went off to the First World War, he met a woman in Kent, where he was stationed before he went over to France, and he entered into a bigamous marriage with her. And what he did was try to assign the military pay that he was entitled to, to this woman in Kent, rather than to <laughs> his family back in South Wales. Nice bloke. Very, a very nice guy. Um, not. And George Thomas, I believe, um, associated his Welsh-speaking father with the language and therefore reacted against it. And he sort of instinctively thought that somebody who was a Welsh speaker from West Wales was somebody not to be trusted, who would betray his own family and all of that. And there are multiple examples in his life of him demonstrating that he had a complete hatred of the Welsh language, that he didn't like anybody who stood for um, any kind of Welsh political entity in its own right. Uh, and in fact, he didn't really like people who came from a different part of Wales to him. So uh, there were a lot of enmities there. Yeah. Uh, but that really all stemmed from this strange childhood he had. Uh, his mother, his mam, uh, was the mainstay of the family. She brought up these uh, five kids on her own. Uh, they started off in, you know, really rank poverty. Uh, he was influenced by her and she was a member of the local Labour Party, but she was also into the Methodist Church. So those were the two big influences on him. So his mam uh, was uh, to him the Labour Party and the Methodist Church. Uh, and uh, he was a relatively bright boy. He went to the grammar school and he then went to train to be a teacher. Um, and initially he was unable to get a job as a teacher in South Wales. He wants to be a primary school teacher, uh, which uh, a cynic would say is a good um, yeah, yeah. Uh, career decision for a paedophile. Um, and he uh, was known actually... Uh, uh, as a, a sadist when he was a teacher, he used to enjoy inflicting uh, physical punishment on uh, the kids that he was teaching. It's quite weird because um, he, uh, he seems to really enjoy children outside of his teaching career, didn't they? Like uh, affectionately referred to as Uncle George and, you know, yeah. kids very, like, I don't know, maybe inappropriately very saddened when he left. Well, yes. I mean, this is this is the thing. I mean, obviously, he would um, he would also um, when he was when he was writing his own autobiography, he would talk about circumstances where he had favoured particular children, or boys, um, invariably, where um, uh, there was one who couldn't afford the milk, and so he would buy them buy milk for the child and all this sort of stuff. Um, but uh, there's 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 no doubt that he he had a reputation as well for being quite a brutal school teacher in terms of uh, whacking kids with a cane. In terms of um, going back again to his you know the influence of his childhood, I mean, you said about this almost this pathological hatred he develops of the Welsh language because he essentially because he has 
issues with his dad, you know, because he, he associates, you, you know, you said that, um, you know, it likely that George's late hostility to the Welsh language has his origins in the bad behaviour of his, his old man. Mm. Um, but what, you know, and, and you said he then joins the Labour Party. Um, but it's interesting to read about, you know, the influence of, as you said, where he comes from and Tony Pandy and you, you know, there's the Tony, Pan, Tony Pandy riots in like 10. Um, and as you said, there's hand-to-hand fighting between the striking miners and the police. Um, and again, here he has this, I mean, he writes later this sympathy towards the striking miners, um, you know, the hostility towards the police who he claimed, you know, came from outside and weren't local and things like that. Um, and then you also say, I mean, and then you've got the 1926 general strike, and, you know, which lasted, you know, the minor strike lasted nine months. You said it affected, you know, his place, Tony Pandy, deeply. But interestingly, George Thomas's family was actually shielded from the worst of it. Um, you, know, you said his dad was part of the safety team, his, his stepdad, stepdad, sorry. Yeah, yeah. So his dad, his stepdad was allowed to carry on working and draw his wages. Um, and, you know, he wasn't able to join his school friends at the soup kitchen. Um, and But, he, you know, he nonetheless, right, you say, right sympathetically of the plight of the people forced to leave their communities. But it's interesting, you said, there's an, at the t- so he's, he's developing almost like a social conscience and a radical, you know, potentially radical sort of labor, you know, socialist views but then he said the american-born socialite uh, turned tory mp lady astor arrived in tonopandi um after referring to the house of Commons, after referring in the house of commons to the ragged army of the unemployed but thomas tells how he and other locals are captivated by her beauty and friendly nod you say perhaps this is an early example of his deference to those he considered his social betters um do you think it's interesting that he didn't I mean, he's from an area which is, you know, people are suffering hardship mm. and he's writing sympathetically about it, but, you know, him and his family were all, always shielded from the worst of it. Has that got any bearing as well, do you think? Or I think the, I think the point here perhaps is that he, uh, even in later life, uh, when he was writing his autobiography, would refer back to that time uh, through a prism, if you like, of a childhood which was dominated by his mam. Mm. And his mam, of course, was very heavily involved in the Labour Party, and she would have been sympathetic to these uh, strikers. So therefore, because he idolised his mam to an enormous extent, anything that was directly associated with what would have been her views of a situation he would not have wanted to contradict. Um, but in a sense, it's a bit of a retrospective piece of sentimentality, mm. I think, because we know that in his later life, at the time he was writing the autobiography, he was in fact a hard right uh, ideologue uh, who had become by then a Tory, essentially. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we know that he was also... Um, uh, involved later than that with uh, this precursor to UKIP. Could, sorry, I was going to say, could we, um, as we touched upon uh, his relationship with his mum, could we perhaps talk about how odd it was that um, it was almost like Norman Bates style, wasn't it? Except she was alive. Mm-hmm. Um, that every time he, someone, I can't remember who it was, but someone this said This is Gwynoro Jones. Yeah, every time he walked past his mum, uh, he'd be like, oh, mum, and then we'd kiss her. Yeah. Right. Just kiss his mum every time. Well, he this past. happened. Uh, what happened was that uh, uh, Gwynoro Jones was the he assistant. Yeah. He was assistant general secretary uh, and the um, press officer for Welsh Labour. And when George was the secretary of state for Wales, 
Um, he lived in a bungalow in uh, George V Drive in Cardiff. And uh, Guinotto would go around every Sunday evening to the bungalow to get a briefing about what the government had been doing so that he could um, write a sort of digest for the Labour parties across Wales. And uh, he uh, says how he would turn up there, he'd walk in and there would be two huge photographs of the Queen and Prince Charles. These would be the first things that you'd see when you walked into the bungalow. And it was like a shrine to the royal family. And then his man would be sitting there. And I, it was interesting that you referred to the sort of, uh, you know, Mrs. Bates thing, because yeah. that's what I thought when, when Guinoro told me the story. And uh, George would have to go into his little study to get some papers from the government uh, to talk about whatever had been going on that week. And every time he walked past his mam, who was sitting in a fireside chair or whatever, he would divert and kiss her and go, "Ma'am," And then he would go and get the uh, document. Oh, ma'am. And then he would come back. And on his way back to his seat, he would again say, "Ma'am," and kiss her once again and sit down. And this is really creepy an, stuff. An unhealthy relationship. I would say so. It's I, I really like that um, every... She'd endorse him on all, all his campaign literature. It's like, why should you vote for me? Well, why don't you ask my ma'am? You should vote for George because he tidies his room and he's very sweet. I was like, thank you, ma'am. It's very weird, isn't it? Um, all right, so let's skip forward a bit. So he's, you know, he's become a teacher. You know, he he joins the Labour Party because of his mum, essentially, in Tanapandi. He becomes a teacher. Um, and then he... Um, he became an activist in the in the NUT, the National activist Union of Teachers. Activist in the NUT, and then he's he dodges the draft in World War Two. Well, that's right. Highly well. So he's well, this right. was quite interesting because um, actually, I had a conversation with Rodri Morgan. I used mm. to uh, meet up with Rodri um, uh, from time to time in Chapter, and we'd have conversations about this. And at a time when I was in the early stages of uh, looking at George Thomas. I said to Rodri, uh, what are the things that surprised you about him? Or what would you, what would you say was something that's never really been looked at properly? And he said, well, this issue about him not having done any military service in the Second World War is an interesting thing to look at. And the rumor was that somehow through his connections in the NUT, some strings had been pulled so that he didn't have to go to uh, fight in the war, join the military service. Uh, and the weird thing is that in his autobiography, and this um, jumps out of the page at you, um, this uh, is just referred to in a throwaway sentence where he says that he didn't have to join the services because he went to a medical board uh, which said that he was unfit to serve in the forces, but he claimed that he had, he never realised the reason why. He, so he didn't realise the reason why, which I just found completely bizarre. So I did, I found out that, that there are very detailed records held in the National Archive at Kew in, in London uh, of these medical board hearings. So I put in a whole series of FOI requests trying to get hold of the uh, medical uh, board at which he would have... Um, uh, been given this dispensation and uh, I was unable to find any. Uh, I was unable to, f I was unable to uh, find uh, any of these records that, that existed. Um, in fact, 
the records themselves are not due to be released until sometime in the 2020s. Um, but what they said at the National Archives was that we have looked through the records uh, of this, the, these documents, in particular these documents that you're wanting to look at, and we can tell you that nobody of that name appears in them. So it seems to me that there was there's no record that exists of him having attended such a medical tribunal. That's a big missing thing. Okay. And it seems to me very likely that he did somehow manage to avoid uh, getting called up or joining the, uh, the the services because of strings that were pulled behind the scenes. I mean, as a, a cowardly man, it's, I can't, you know, personally can't criticise him on that, <laughs> on that camp. As you said, that sort of sets the tone for um, using influence, um, getting out of things. But it's the hypocrisy of it, isn't it? Yeah, because if uh, he really didn't want to go, if he had a conscientious objection, yeah. he should have said, yeah. I don't want to go to war and I'm prepared to stand by my principles. But he, he didn't do that. So he dodges the draft. He then gets selected as the candidate for, is it Cardiff South or Cardiff Central, isn't it? Cardiff Central. Yeah, well, what happened was uh, he wanted to um, get the nomination for Cardiff South. Uh, and uh, he thought that he was going to get this nomination. But some uh, naval officer came along who was um, very smart and beat him. And this was Jim Callahan, who had no connection at all with Cardiff. So he came along and beat him. And he harbored a grudge against Jim Callahan for decades after that. Uh, and had never had any time for him. Uh, he managed, George managed to get selected for Cardiff Central, which later became Cardiff West. And, uh, and yet even though he was neighboring MP, he couldn't stand uh, Callahan, although he never actually told him that. Yeah. And in fact, when he made some uh, critical comments about uh, Callahan, uh, making it clear in his autobiography that he didn't like him, Callahan was devastated. Yeah, you, you said he, because there was an anecdote in the book where you said that he, Callahan and him used to travel up to London together for yep. years, as, as and ostensibly Callahan thinks, well, I'm really tight with this guy. Yeah, that's right. But all the time, George Thomas absolutely hates him and then stabs yeah. him in the back. I mean, played the long game there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah well, but I mean, that has. I mean, that resentment. I mean, has to be rooted. I mean, has to be rooted in some insecurity. You know, Callahan you know, mm. is a naval officer. You know, mm. Thomas dodges the draft. Callahan comes in, gets given the um, can't just hang out with loads of sexy boys in a boat for long <laughs> periods of time. Um, okay, so but he he gets a nomination and obviously. It being Wales, he gets, you know, mm -hmm. becomes an MP. So, you know, the next, the chapter then deals with, uh, it's called Backbench and Communist Fellow Traveller. So talk us through his early sort of parliamentary career, um, because this is where he becomes, I guess he makes his name as a, as a left winger. He, and mm -hmm. almost, would you say this is where he almost starts to cultivate kudos in Wales, you know, because he, he establishes his socialist credentials? Well, he used to like uh, to hang out with um, Aaron Bevan, mm -hmm. um, although uh, I don't think they particularly um, liked each other. Um, but he would certainly gravitate towards him. Uh, actually, one of the very few good things that you can say about George Thomas is that in uh, his maiden speech after he was elected in 1945, he made a, a very serious point actually about the need for leasehold reform because at that time and for decades after until the campaign that George Thomas espoused um, managed to get the law changed, there were lots of people in 
parts of Wales, particularly in Cardiff and the valleys, um, who were living in houses that they thought they owned, but in fact they only held the leasehold, and they were 99-year leases. And at the end of the 99 years, uh, at the time, the freeholder uh, could demand what at the time was a very large amount of money for them to stay on, or if they couldn't pay that, they were evicted from their homes, which was um, quite despicable. So George Thomas recognised that this was a bad situation, and to be fair to him, he was in favour of the law being changed. But that's one of the few things that that he did that was positive, I would say. So it's not well. Not I guess everyone does want some you know some good things. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so you know, so he. As we've alluded to earlier, this during this time he goes to Greece, doesn't he? He goes to the Soviet Union, um, meets with Stalin, um, which is a lucky thing. I would love to do done that. Um, meets with Stalin, you know. Um, and what, what I mean, if he wasn't a communist, if he wasn't really a di- an ardent socialist, why is he doing it? You know, why is he sort of going to Sochi and hanging out with Stalin? And well, I think what we can, what we know is that afterwards. Uh, I mean, there's this correspondence which shows that this group of MPs that he was associating with was led by a man called Connie Ziliakis, uh, who was of Lithuanian extraction. Uh, and these people were controlled by the Soviet yeah. embassy. Uh, and what George tried to say was that they were... Uh, people who were controlling him and that he was naive and he didn't realise what was going on. But in fact, there is quite a lot of material in the archive which he kept, which was propaganda, communist propaganda from the uh, satellite states of the Soviet Union like Czechoslovakia and Poland. Um, And for him to suggest that he was just being led up the garden path and was completely naive is rather ridiculous. Now, also what he'd done is during the um, the Greek Civil War, after the Second World War, um, he had gone over to Greece on some fact-finding mission, which was organised by a communist front organisation. And he claimed that he didn't realise that it was a communist front organisation, which is very difficult to uh, to, to believe. Um, so that he was associated with these people. Yeah, the, the reason why he then um, jettisoned all that was because he he was warned by the whips in the House of Commons mm. that if he carried on associating with such people, his career would go nowhere. So he quickly dropped it, and I think this probably also explains the later stuff with the foundation of the of CND that uh, everything that he did was self serving. So if he had um, carried on uh, as a lefty, hmm. then he wouldn't have had any ministerial so, career. So do you think he was, I mean, do you think he was actually manoeuvring? I mean, that, this is the interesting thing, I think, and it's hard to understand. If he wasn't a dyed-in-the-wool socialist, I mean, or a communist even, did he, he must have thought there was going to be some sort of gain from allying himself with these elements within the Labour Party. Is that right? I mean, is he... Was he, did he think that he was going to go places in the party for being, you know, attached to this tendency, or, or well, do you think I, he actually believed it? I think that he got involved with these characters, and um, 
it was probably part of his um, persona that he he wanted to be seen as a left winger from the valleys, right? Okay, uh, and that this seemed to be the appropriate route to take. Um, the naivety, I suppose, comes not from the fact that he. Um, didn't realise that these people were communists because mm. they clearly were, but from the fact that it would actually damage his chances of, of advancing in his career. And as soon as it became clear to him that it was uh, against his personal interests to carry on in that vein, he dropped it immediately without any apparent um, conscience. Bye. Yeah, <laughs> I, I got the impression throughout the book that he's very similar, very much someone dipped his toes in like the political water to see, like you know which way to go next and then just follow it. I mean, because like you're saying, from in the space of what, fifth, like 40, 50 years from going from like uh, maybe a, sta- a, not a Stalinist, but definitely a communist to right around to, you know, what, what be you best friends with future. Thatcher. Yeah, or like being, yeah, you know. What you say there, Martin, is interesting. I mean, what I mean, and again, I think maybe it's, if we're talking about, you know, uh, George Thomas as an archetype, um, it's interesting that you, you, you say that maybe he's trying to work out how to position himself and almost what's going to give him kudos like in the valleys, for example, at the time you were a hotbed of sort of socialism. Um, and there's a tension, isn't there? Because he's on, on the one hand, he's trying to create this persona for himself and which is going to appeal to his constituents. But on the other hand, it's clear that that persona isn't going to get him anywhere within the Parliamentary Labour Party and within... His career, so that's clearly a tension. I mean, and if we're going to be honest, I mean that's something that is clearly the balancing act that a lot of Labour MPs have always had to walk, especially mm. the ones that have been parachuted into Wales. They've always had to. Oh, I need to, you know, sort of portray myself as this to my constituents, and then come back and be a sort of safe pair of hands in Parliament. But Labour then, where they they got voted out of office in fifty one. That's right. Um, and then you, you, you call it like the, his years of frustration. But during this time, you say he's kind of working out how to position himself as, uh, well, as a consummate politician, really. And, and he attaches himself to all sorts of causes, doesn't he? Yeah. And in fact, um, he had, uh, and this is actually another perhaps positive thing about him, is that he was somebody who didn't really manifest any um, racism because he got to know partly through the Methodist church and partly through um, the time when he was a minister later on. Uh, Quite a few people uh, who became uh, presidents of countries in Africa. And so when he was... Um, was a minister in later years, he was able to refer back to uh, meetings that he'd had with these people or talk about things that went on in the Methodist church. Uh, and he did seem to have a rapport with some of these characters, some of whom were hardly um, uh, admirable uh, exponents of democracy in their own countries, but nevertheless, in their time, were seen as uh, freedom fighters. There was a quite a funny line by some of them, uh, or some of them, someone saying that uh, you may have a white face, but you've got a black heart. That's right. Yeah, that's exactly. Uh, meant what I as said. a compliment, of course. That like, was you know, meant as a compliment. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. all these, so all these things we're saying. You know, George Thomas is a, a horrible chameleon paedophile, but at least he wasn't racist. Yeah, I mean, um, that's just saving grace. Um, all right. So, I mean, <laughs> so during this time, he positions himself as a 
uh, well, he he's obviously moved away from being a fellow communist, fellow traveller. Um, but then when Labour get back in in 1964, um, he gets a ministerial appointment, doesn't he? So what is yep. it? He joins the he Home Office. The Home Office. Uh, and then he becomes, when does he become, he becomes Secretary of State for Wales then? Uh, he, he was also a minister in the um, Commonwealth Office. So this is when he would go over to Africa and lord it over there. Um, and then he became uh, sort of number two. And during that time, he uh, was there at the, at the um, uh, Abavan disaster. Uh, and then in 1968, he was actually appointed the Secretary of State for Wales. And his role as Secretary of State for Wales uh, was dominated uh, by the investiture of the Prince of Wales. And it's during that time that he really majored in sycophancy towards the royal family and got to a level of um, royal sucking up that he maintained for the rest of his life. So, I mean... Do, do you think this is a, a sudden decision for him to sort of become a an arch royalist, and, or was it you know did he want to piss off nationalists, or or what was it? Do you think? Or? I think probably uh, the sort of community that he came from was one where, um, in the same way as during the general strike, there were um, people who were uh, putting forward sort of loyal petitions to the uh, to the king. Um, Many people in the, in the valleys at the time were uh, monarchists. Uh, so that was a, a sort of default position for him, which is a bit odd given his um, links yeah, with it, the communists. It, it, it seems odd, but this, I mean, what's fascinating about George Thomas, what's fascinating about this book, is that he's the personification of the contradictions at the heart of Labourism, really. And if you look at the positions held by people in the Labour Party today um, and throughout history, they've always managed to combine socially progressive you know th- as in you know, basically socialist with underlying sort of pretty much reactionary um ideas particularly in the default support of the british state um militarism in particular and sort of monarchism and i mean this is what I mean, got maybe a little bit of a tangent but you allude to it the contradictions i mean we spoke about it with simon but you know lenin and marx and engels when they live i mean it wouldn't be a podcast for him to bring it up, but but when they talk about the labour movement, when you know Engels is living in Manchester, um, you know Marx and Lenin, right? They all say the same thing: like the British labour movement is unique because it developed at the time of empire. So, he, without going to specifics, British the British Labour Party sort of inherited these reactionary imperialist sort of latent tendencies, and they've always been there. So, as you said, it might not be. It does, on the one hand, seem strange, but on the other hand, it's not. It was the difference as well, wasn't it, between in the early days the Labour Party and the Independent Labour yeah, Party, mm-hmm. which was more of a pacifist, internationalist sort of party. So, yes, I mean, that sort of underlying uh, monarchism has mm-hmm. always been there. That's interesting. And it was certainly there at the time when he was in his heyday. Um, and so... He craved the company of people that he regarded as his uh, social superiors. And he used to enjoy hanging out with these people. He used to love it. And uh, 
they saw him as something of a pet as well. <laughs> I thought you were going to say peasant. <laughs> no, no, they would have seen him as a they would have seen him as a pet, and so he was no doubt very charming to them, and they found him an interesting curiosity. Yeah, and so. Um, actually, Prince Charles and Princess Diana came to regard him as something of a confidant. Really? Yeah, and there were letters that I found uh, in which they're talking um, about, uh, you know, t- talking with him on, uh, you know, very familiar terms, and he was seen as someone that they would go to for advice. And, of course, he was the only person um, who read a lesson at the wedding that took place. So they'd invited him along to do that, and he glorified in that. He thought that was absolutely fantastic. And he used to go regularly to meet the likes of the Queen Mother. Uh, he would organise drinking parties for Princess Margaret and this sort of stuff. Methodist, though, it. drinking parties. Well, this Whoa. is the irony, because he used to pose as a teetotaler when he oh. wasn't a teetotaler at all. He used to drink. Yeah, so this is another part of his dissembling. Do you think it was like almost quite a contradictory existence for him in the sense that, like, I, I do get the impression that his religion, I mean, you know, being a Methodist was quite dear to him and not like a front, but also at the same time his personality and his sexuality is just in, in complete contrast to both, isn't it? It must have been quite difficult to kind of well, indeed, live with. And it, I, the thing is that at the time uh, when he was uh, a young man and right the way up to 1968 when it was partially decriminalized um, homosexuality was illegal mm. so he had to learn like so many other gay people had to learn about how to conceal their sexuality but for him that extended into other areas of his life uh, like the uh, you know the lack of principle that he had and the ability to be a political chameleon where he was um you know, veering uh, as he did from uh, being, uh, you know, pretty far left to being far right. So, um, well, who? Th- this is an interesting point because I mean, who can really? I mean, as you said, the the horrific experiences that must have you know for, for homosexuals back in back in the day of having to suppress your real self and. I mean, we could have been completely tortured as an individual. And um, well, we wonder what, where did he drink though? And he drank what in his house, or he kind of drank in the Commons Bar. I don't know where he would have drunk, but um, so he his monarchism and sort of general toadyism, I guess, just is ramped up. Uh, because I mean, because he just, as you said, he loves hanging out with his social betters. But um, talks through Abervan because Abervan is one of the. I mean, because would you say at this time? You know, his, what's his reputation like, I guess, both within the Labour Party and amongst his constituents? Well, uh, most of his constituency, constituents would have regarded him as a good constituency MP mm. because he would always take up cases that were brought to him. Um, that changed a bit later on after he ceased to be an MP and he turned down quite a few people who had legitimate causes for complaint and grounds to campaign and he wasn't interested in that he was quite choosy and therefore he would be backing people like Jonathan Aitken and Geoffrey Archer uh, and uh, not helping people who were victims of um, miscarriages of justice or had been wrongly prosecuted he wasn't interested in that at all nevertheless at the time when he was an MP he was regarded as a uh, as a, uh, a, a conscientious uh, MP, uh, and he was very able to turn on the charm. So um, 
uh, he would he would meet people and he'd, and he'd be superficially very charming to them. Um, now, uh, within Welsh Labour, of course, at the time, uh, there were two uh, opposing strands. Uh, uh, those who were in favour of devolution for Wales and were those who were against. He was one of the most prominent anti-devolutionists. So, um, uh, at the time, uh, there were quite a few people within the Labour Party who were, shall we say, um, red-blooded unionists who took that to the point where they were wholly opposed to any kind of devolution. And so there were people <coughs> who were <coughs> obviously trying to get the party to move uh, its position and, uh, uh, you know, come out in favour of devolution. And in fact, of course, that led to the referendum in 1979, which... Uh, culminated in a very heavy defeat for the um, for the for, for those who were in favour of an assembly, but he added his voice very much to <coughs> to those people who were <coughs> who were against um, any kind of um, discreet Welsh political identity. Is that I mean, would you say that's rooted? in his hostility to the Welsh language, or did he have a more intellectually sort of coherent um, opposition to, you know, the, the principle of Welsh sort of uh, political representation? He hated Welsh nationalism, which he associated with the Welsh language. Just kind of a visceral... So yeah. a vitriolic, uh, visceral hatred of, of the Welsh language, and that, for him... Uh, meant that he was against devolution because he associated it with uh, nationalists who were Welsh speakers. And it's it, it's it's something that you've, we we see right through history. I mean, you think about 1997. I mean, Slough Smith and other sort of anti-devolution MPs. There's always been that. I mean, these are very. The frustrating thing is that these are intelligent people, aren't they? And um, but when it comes to this, you know. Uh, it's almost like a learned behaviour, I think, for some people in the Labour Party in South Wales, that there's a, in the first instance, it's, it's nationalism is associated with language, with the Welsh language, and, and that's just it. You know, and there's, there's no sort of really intellectually coherent debate. It's just, it's just a hatred. I mean, it's just a real deep Well, well it hatred. is, and also, I mean, I recently um, uh, interviewed Ron Davis over lunch uh, to uh, coincide with the 20th anniversary of the referendum. And he, of course, joined Plaid and stood as a Plaid yeah. candidate for the Assembly back in uh, 2011. And what he said to me was that uh, when he was out canvassing uh, for Plaid, as a Plaid candidate, he would knock on people's door and they would answer it and he would say, you know, I'm standing as a Plaid candidate, can I cancel your support? And they said, we don't speak Welsh. Um, and so why would we want to vote Plaid? Because there is, in certainly parts of the valleys, uh, to this day, a belief that uh, Plaid Cymru is a Welsh language party and that if you don't speak Welsh, there's no reason for you to support Plaid. Absolutely. And it's um, it's a hatred of the, well, it's not hatred, it's a fear of the you know, the Welsh speaking other. That George, it, It's interesting because George Thomas personifies his tenancy. Yeah, I don't think that Plaid Cymru have ever really understood it or taken it seriously and for people who, you know Nathan and I have both grown up in Bridgend it's something that we I know extremely well it's something that I've it's extremely common to me this assumption that you know uh, 
Welsh speakers don't like us, you know, we don't like them, and, and this association applied with just the Welsh speaking party, I don't think it's something applied have ever taken seriously. Okay, we'll move on to um, an event which is burned into the, the Welsh national consciousness, and that's Aberfan. And George Thomas had a central role in, I guess, how Aberfan was handled, because he was, was he the Welsh office minister in the he Welsh was, office yeah, at the time? Yeah. he was as a number two at the uh, Welsh office at the time. So... On the day that the tragedy happened, he went down to the village, which, uh, you know, superficially one would say was a, a very good thing for him to have done, to show empathy yeah, with course. the people who were suffering, the bereaved and all of that. But there was one really weird piece of information which stuck out for me when I was reading his autobiography when he was writing about uh, the day. And he went with Lord Snowden, who was Princess Margaret's husband at the time, uh, to meet some bereaved mother, uh, was invited into the home, and Lord Snowden went off to make a cup of tea, and George Thomas then lectured the woman who was waiting for her child to come home, who never did come home, and said to her, you should think yourself lucky that a member of the royal family is here to make you a cup of tea. So this is really quite um, bizarre stuff. Uh, and uh, shows a considerable lack of empathy, I would say. Um, so that was bad enough. But then what happened was that after the tragedy, when things were not exactly dying down, but uh, uh, beyond the uh, uh, immediate impact of the tragedy itself, uh, there were many people from across the world, because this gained worldwide publicity, because it was such a, a huge... Uh, uh, tragic occurrence for all these children to uh, to die and quite a few teachers as well uh, so people were sending money for the bereaved relatives uh, and also for a memorial to be built in the village and some idea came up that the fund should be used or part of the fund money should be used to pay towards the cost of removing the rest of the tip. So you had this situation where this proposal came forward that uh, this um, uh, traumatised community should actually use some of the money that had been collected by people across the world to try to bring them a little comfort in their time of need. Some of this money should be taken off them to be pooled with some money provided by the UK government and the National Coal Board to uh, to actually remove the cause of what had caused the tragedy in the first place. And it was, of course, we have to remember, a, a man-made tragedy because it was a result of gross negligence and incompetence that the, uh, uh, the, 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 the whole thing happened in the first place. So this created uh, an enormous backlash in the village um, there was an occasion when there was a public meeting that was held uh, where they were denouncing um, the the government George Thomas was trying to defend all of this because he had gone along with this idea and he uh, became severely criticized because he didn't say to Harold Wilson, who was the Prime Minister, look, this is completely out of order. We can't have a situation where the uh, people themselves, who are the victims, have to stump up £150,000, which is worth a hell of a lot more then than it is now. 
in fact, uh, it, was, it was worth about two million in today's money. Uh, so what happened uh, eventually after that was that despite the protests, the £150,000 was taken, and it took until Ron Davis was the Secretary of State in the late 1990s before the money was repaid, uh, and that was £150,000. And then when Rodri Morgan was the First Minister some years later, they paid the uh, £2 million interest as well. I mean, that whole episode is obviously... It's a, it's a tragic episode it's hard to talk about but it's staggering that something like that could even I mean it shouldn't I mean the fact it was a Labour government and the fact that you wonder how can that idea even come about in the first place let alone actually come to fruition and it's just I don't know it really beggars belief doesn't it yeah there was of course at the time a former Labour minister who was the chairman of the National Coal Board a man called Alf Robins and so they were in to a bit of uh, covering up and trying to play down the situation to try to make sure that there wasn't any political fallout as a consequence. But uh, yes, I mean to come up with the idea that the um, the bereaved relatives should have to chip in money to remove the cause of their anguish is just almost beyond belief. So it's expensive cup of tea, that wasn't it? Well, it was. Um, uh, I mean, it's something that he obviously didn't see was insensitive because mm-hmm. he put it in his own autobiography. Like, but when you read it, it yeah. just jumps out at you from the page, you know, about how inappropriate a comment that was. So did he, I mean, did the, his handling of this, did it damage his political career? Well, it didn't really do very much uh, damage at the time because he was subsequently promoted to be the Secretary of State for Wales. And... Um, people seemed to forget about it at the time and it only really came back uh, last year Mm. when uh, there was a lot of publicity at the time of the 50th anniversary of the tragedy so there were TV programs that were done um, there were pieces that were written uh, I did one myself uh, in the Western Mail about this so uh, if you like, a new generation found out about this and uh, and was shocked by it and I think it was that coupled with the um, sex allegations that, for example, prompted the uh, owners of the pub at Tonopandy to, to remove his name from, uh, from, uh, from the pub. And then, of course, subsequently, they've also removed uh, his name from the uh, hospice organisation too. City Hospice now, I think, isn't it's it? It's now called City Hospice. Okay, we've, just, we've talked about his... his the royalism and his sort of fetishization almost of the of the monarchy um and you've just talked about there in that episode that bizarre episode where he admonishes a, a grieving mother um one of the other i guess incidents or uh, events that he's best known for is the investiture isn't it is a uh, Prince this is the investiture of Prince Charles, Charles yeah. Prince of Wales in 1969. That's in Carnarvon, isn't Castle, it? When he was the Secretary of State for Wales. Now, um, this was a very controversial event. Um, it was wholly opposed by Welsh nationalists. Yep. And uh, they had demonstrations about it uh, on the extreme fringe wing. Um, there were even a couple of people who blew themselves up. Yeah, on the Abigala line. On the Abigala railway line. Um, and I think what happened at that time was that while it's certainly the case that the majority of people in Wales would have supported it, uh, because the majority of people were royalists, yeah. as they probably are now, yeah. um, there was uh, 
a sense that um, those people who were more uh, nationalistically inclined, uh, if they disliked George Thomas beforehand, <laughs> they became uh, they, they, they came to absolutely revile him after this, and they just associated him with, uh, with the um, sycophancy of the occasion and. Uh, really thought that he was a terrible character because at the time he was also coming out with a lot of anti-nationalist sentiments. Yeah. And of course, what we have to remember is that uh, in 1966, Gwynvore Evans had been elected in a by-election as the first Plaid Cymru MP. So the Labour Party was quite worried about uh, Plaid at the time. And uh, it's uh, undoubtedly the case, I think, that um, uh, George Thomas used the investiture as a way of presenting uh, and, if you like, rebranding uh, unionism uh, as something that was comforting to a lot of people in Wales, as a way of hitting back at uh, nationalism and trying to ensure that nationalism did not fly. And also, perhaps, I mean, they could maybe have predicted a, some form of violent backlash and, and they were that gives them even more ammunition I guess well that's right I mean yes clearly uh, you know uh, there were people there were hot-headed people who were uh, going over the top in their in their reaction but I think also that the fact that this investiture uh, led to a lot of people on the nationalist wing just completely uh, hating him and reviling him has meant that until I've written this book, he hasn't been properly evaluated because mm. those who were his supporters, who tended to be people of an older generation, uh, were uh, lapping up uh, all of this, uh, all of this stuff, um, and uh, you know they were very supportive of him. They would write him letters. You could tell that they were old people because you could, uh, you know, when you, uh, if you, if you go to really nice handwriting, calligraphy, handwriting, so you can tell it's really old, old people, and uh, they, they thought the world of George Thomas, and uh, in the same way that he was sycophantic to the royal family, they, they were sycophantic towards him. Was there ever a commemorative plate brought out with George Thomas's face on it? Uh, I think there probably was actually. Because that's, that's a good mark, isn't it, old people? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but um, the, so you've got those people who were happy with his autobiography as well. They were lapped up his own uh, self serving account of his life. Uh, there are a couple of other um, friends of his in the Methodist Church who also write, wrote biographies of him, which were praising him. And those who were opposed to him just thought this is a guy that I don't want to have anything to do with yeah and indeed I've noticed that some of the some of the comments that have been made on uh, Twitter and uh, Facebook about not about the the book itself but about him have been mm. uh, saying you know sort of Achavi, what a horrible odious man he is and as if they don't really want to think about him at all and they just want to consign him to history to the dustbin of history but uh, my argument is that you need to understand the significance of this guy uh, in order to have a full appreciation of the, the threat that he posed to Wales as a nation because what he was doing was 
effectively trying to crush any attempt to have a Welsh political sphere. He was just totally tied into uh, the Westminster Parliament. He was dead set against devolution. Uh, he conspired um, when he was the Speaker to do whatever he could to thwart uh, devolution. And um, if he'd had his way, there would be no question of uh, an assembly having come into force. And if the assembly had not been created, if, for example, the uh, no campaign had won in 1997, and of course he was involved in that, it was shortly before he died, it was only four days before he died when the uh, result was announced, he was heavily involved in the no campaign, even though he was dying of cancer. And his friend Julian Hodge bankrolled the no campaign. Uh, if they had won, and we all know how close the vote yeah. was, then that would have been uh, the end of uh, Wales as a political entity. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and th this is what's fascinating about the book. I mean, uh, with what, and what you've just said, I mean, the, the concluding chapter of the book, I mean, it's, uh, I, can, I guess it's not a spoiler, but you say this, why understanding George Thomas is important. I think that's really, I mean, and what you said about one of the most interesting things, I think, about George Thomas, and I think if I can speak for people of a more sort of na nationalist ilk, it's almost uncomfortable for people to believe that people like George, not just George Thomas, lived, but the fact that there are thousands, hundreds of thousands of people in Wales who think and thought exactly the same as him, and it is hard for people to see Welsh people. You know, if you're if you're on the left of the political spectrum, you know, like Nathan and I, it's hard to see people slavishly sort of worship the monarchy and things like that. But the fact is, he he does represent a, te a huge, and as you said, a historic tendency in Welsh political life. So, in your opinion, then, Martin, how do you how do you account for you know? How I mean, I know you, you alluded to it in the beginning, but how do you account for someone like George Thomas? And, and you say in the book it, it, it's a tendency that's too prevalent in, in Welsh political life. Do you see any, without naming names, do you see that, is, is, his, are the, is what George Thomas represented, is that tradition still alive? I think it is alive. Um, I think that uh, there are people in the Labour Party who remain opposed to devolution. Um, uh, they're not as strong as they used to be. And it's more hush-hush now, isn't it? It is, uh, but I mean, until very recently, uh, you had a situation where um, there were uh, MPs at Westminster who were very resentful of the powers that the Assembly was accruing. And indeed, we know, uh, even today, that um, uh, there will be occasions where uh, whatever Carwin Jones may say about what he wants to happen and what powers he wants to come to Wales, uh, there are Labour MPs in Westminster representing Welsh constituencies who will vote against that. So that anti-Welsh element is still very much there. And of course, we have to remember that at the Assembly election last year, there were seven UKIP uh, Assembly members elected. And uh, George Thomas, of course, uh, in his dying uh, months became a fervent supporter of a referendum party founded by the billionaire businessman Jimmy Goldsmith, uh, which was a precursor to UKIP. So you can trace the uh, influences that he had right up to uh, the, and, and his legacy right up to the present day. It's fascinating. And, and one of the, th I mean, 
it gets for me to some of the most regressive and reactionary tendencies within Labourism. It's something that is we talked about earlier. It's these latent tendencies of Britishness and Unionism and Monarchism. But one of the interesting and more mind blowing things you talk about the honour system, and George Thomas was involved in commission, like the the process of giving out honours, wasn't he? Um, and one of the things I thought was fascinating in the book is that he was lobbied by, you know, died in the wool. Labour Party members and trade unionists to give we want honours and their justification was it would be good for the Labour movement if I got it would it would give a was it a, a boost to the workers if they saw That's right. fellow workers being made lords or get CBs or whatever it yes, was yes exactly so uh, there are um, numerous examples in the archive of letters that were written to him uh, where people were nominating themselves and saying to him, can you use your influence to ensure that I get on the honours list? This was going on an awful lot. And then, of course, in parallel to that, he was also um, getting involved in trying to get um, places at university for his Cypriot friend's son. Um, and there were other examples of uh, young men in particular. Uh, there didn't ever seem to be any young women, strangely enough, but a young men whose uh, cause he was espousing. Um, and there's one that I remember uh, very well where uh, uh, some young man wrote to him and said, um, you, uh, George, I wonder if you can help me. I'm out of work at the moment and I need to get a job. Uh, please help me. And uh, George responded, well, the best thing you can do is to come around to my bungalow on Sunday evening. Between um, seven and eight. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, th- th- there was this uh, there was this trait, there, and the, the chapter is actually called patronage, because it was both... <laughs> that's what it is. It's, that's exactly what it was. It was both um, fixing honours for people, um, and it was also about... Um, getting preferment for uh, people that he he chose to uh, look after. Uh, and, I mean, also, it goes further than that, because he was very happy to help people out when they were in scrapes, like uh, Jonathan Aitken. He even um, recommended Geoffrey Archer for an award, uh, and this was at a time when he had been imprisoned it's like the Godfather. It's like you know, oh. it'll be like the skull never existed. <laughs> no, that's not, but I need actual olives in my mouth to do it. Um, and patronage is a, has been historically a problem in Wales. You know, it's and he is. He's, I said it. You can't really call him an aberration, can we? Because he's just a the product. He's of an example. A, a cult, a, a very Welsh culture. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, jobs for the boys has been a trait which has existed for many years, and it, uh, it continues to uh, thrive. Say, so like, Americans, apple pies, says Welsh is whatever the Welsh food is. Welsh cakes. Welsh is Welsh cakes, yeah. Um, right. Um, we've come to the end of discussing the life of Welsh Labour. And death. Paedophile, you know. <laughs> Supreme. Uh, George Thomas, I mean, but it's been really, really fascinating, Mark, so thank you so much for, uh, for coming on and, and talking about this, your book, and 
and for reflecting on what it means, you know, for understanding contemporary Wales. I think that's important, and, and you know, the history of Wales. I think that's the really important and and striking thing about the book. That it's not just a, it's not just kicking a bloke when he's dead, which it really is, which is fantastic. Um, it's yeah, it's a reflection on on Wales itself. Um, is there anything you'd like to add about the book? And I mean, obviously, how, I mean, how to buy it, where do you buy it, and things like that. And, yeah, well, um, the market, it? you know, it uh, it took quite a bit of time to put together, and it involved quite a few trips to Aberystwyth. So I'm very well acquainted with um, Barravin now, which is a fine establishment uh, on the seafront at Aberystwyth, and so I would recommend that anyone who goes to Aberystwyth to go there. I think I know it. It's the one. It's got a nice uh, downstairs seating area, is it? It has. It's right on the seafront. No, it uh, it's very very pleasant. Conference life, um, so. <laughs> Uh, but uh, I mean, I, I think uh, the um, importance of this book is, in my view, that it does illustrate um, the life uh, of somebody who represents uh, some of the more unappealing aspects of Welshness. Um, Paedophilia isn't an innate part of that. It is, it, is, it, is, it is not an innate part of Welshness, but the, the, the way in which this guy um, uh, operated and functioned in his life as a, uh, a very prominent politician uh, and the stances that he adopted um, uh, and the way in which he espoused uh, establishment and royalist values having begun as a left-wing socialist, I think, is a, a very um, cautionary tale Absolutely. which a lot of politicians uh, should uh, take notice of. Not that we have any you know, Labour politicians in Wales who are following that same path at the moment, Oop. not at all. None. Um, okay, so you've done it, I guess, I mean, you've done a shout-out Martin to the Bar of Inn. Uh, is there anyone else you'd like to say hello to? Or well, I mean, I just hope that uh, it, would be, it would be good for um, uh, you know this this book to have some currency and for people to actually uh, read it and understand uh, what this man was about and to take it as a warning. I think that's the most important thing. Take it as a warning, um, and let's try to consign to truly consign George Thomas to history. Okay, thank you so much, Martin. So, it's political chameleon in search of George Thomas by Martin Shipton, and it's published by Welsh uh, Academic Press, and I guess you can buy it in all good bookstores. One would hope so, um, but you can also buy it directly from the publisher and on Amazon. Oh, at the back of your car as well. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes. (laughs) Although I don't have a car. (laughs) At the back of someone else's car. Um, Okay, yeah, so thanks so much, Martin, Um, and shout-outs for me, I guess. Well, thanks to Martin, because we've had some technical issues since uh, this week, and he's been extremely tolerant. Uh, and accommodating of us so thank you very much and say and hello to my family again so uh, shout out to me new Blade Runner film fantastic best thing ever everyone disagrees completely wrong and then a shout out to Oliver who uh, is going to help us out with some designs oh that's right we do have some yeah so Oliver thanks so much to Ted Jackson you know who you are thanks, yeah. for, thanks for all your help our angels um, and to oh yeah to, uh, in Cardiff I mean you talk about uh, the Veen place in Aberystwyth Martin Sen Barbecue on oh yeah, Calvary big shout to Sen is our oh, yes. unofficial sponsor of the show. I know it. Absolutely yeah, yeah. brilliant. Yeah, it's, good um, it's fantastic. So check out Sen. All right, guys. Uh, thanks very much for listening. Um, and we'll catch up soon. Bye. Right. Ta-da. Hey, Chip. Let's go. We'll be late for the game. I can't. I have to put all of my dolls away. Why? 
Cindy's coming over for the first time and none of these dolls have hats on. Well, why don't you go down to Tiny Hats? They're not open on Sundays. They are now. Tiny Hats is now open Saturdays and Sundays, so you don't have to worry about those last-minute Tiny Hat emergencies. Hats for small men and babies. Hats to complement cakes and pies. Wear one under your normal-sized hat. It's your secret. And now we've introduced a new line of extra-large Tiny Hats. Tiny Hats is proud partners with Dingle's Hat Experience. And when we got up, she said, I'm with the SWAT team. <laughs> Want some more wine, Cindy? Sure. Cool dolls. Great hats. Those are my dolls. And I got those tiny hats at Tiny Hats.